February 19th, 1942. Brin Moon across the sky in the purple morning, dry earth unfurling. In another California, my grandmother is packing. Everything she owns into one suitcase. Two suitcases. The water still. And the clay pitcher, water unwasted. Only what she can carry. There is no moment in my life in which this is not happening. What is happiness? Two granddaughters in a summer garden. Firstborn, secondborn, and grandmother laughing. There is no moment in which she is not alive and rising, viewing these hills, this morning sky with shadows. Welcome to the Infinite Kaleidoscope, a space where we talk to creatives about being creative. I'm your host, Kristen Kofer. I am Patrick Shiroishi. I am a Japanese-American multi-instrumentalist living in Los Angeles. My mom told me she used to listen to classical music and put it like up to the womb so I could feel the vibrations and stuff. The first memories I had of music was definitely like my mom singing to me when I was a kid. Uh, she always used to play like classical music where the jazz stations when she would take us to school and she was definitely in charge of the radio and middle school when I discovered Walkmans and headphones and it became, I listen to whatever I want to listen to. And then did you just pick up playing saxophone like in elementary school? So I started piano when I was like five, like a good Asian boy. And I picked up saxophone in middle school, a fifth grade band, and it just looked super cool. And I was like, I want to play that one. I've been messing around with it ever since. I was on all the school bands, like marching band. We had a concert band and then jazz band. Were you immediately good? I think it came naturally, but I didn't practice as much as I should have because I thought that I was good, you know, like like an idiot little kid. And I was like, man, fuck, I don't need to do that. But once I went to college and I got there and all these people are fucking shredding, like insanely good. And it discouraged me. And I was like, never mind. Patrick Shuishi is an insanely talented multi-instrumentalist. I had the pleasure to have met him when I was living in Los Angeles. I was immediately blown away by Patrick and his saxophone skills, not only with playing in bands, but with his own projects too. We had this photo shoot where I photographed Patrick playing in red light and we totally connected. In the years since being back in the Bay Area, I've kept in touch with him and followed his musical journey. Throughout the pandemic, Patrick and his collaborators have been continuously putting out music. Patrick is Japanese-American, and when COVID started, and suddenly all of these Asian-Americans became targets of hate, he put his voice, which is his music, to work. Learning about the beginnings of his musical path, I wanted to know if there was a time in the beginning when Patrick felt like he wanted to take music more seriously and make it fully his career. I think there was like an overwhelming joy in that creative process and making something new with friends, you know? Collaborating, which I absolutely love. You know, we would look forward to practice after school and you know we play awful fucking shows but it didn't matter music is definitely part of my life forever and you know even if i'm not playing it i definitely need to be listening to it or you know seeking new music out before our conversation patrick sent me a playlist he said is all music from albums that changed my projection idea of what music could be like you can follow along with us in the show notes and there's a link to listen to it afterwards as well and you start with Blink-182 Josie. 
Yes, it's a fucking classic. They were the first band that I actively bought a CD on my own. And up until then, it was just like whatever my parents were, were playing. And then I got into like K-Rock and Power 106 down here. But Blue 182 was the first band. I was like, whoa, this is awesome. <laughs> I mean, who wasn't into them? Exactly. I mean, they're fucking good. You could talk all the shit you want, but they fucking rule. To me, that shit still holds up. Yes, Travis is dating a Kardashian, but damn, can he fucking drum? Yeah. So then, yeah, you go from Blink-182 to Blonde Redhead, which is night and day, in my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that was the art rock kind of the scene that I was talking about. And at first it was jarring. I was like, what is this? This isn't like pop punk or whatever, 311 or Red Hot Chili Peppers on the radio. From that seed, really going on a Kazaa or LimeWire and friends saying, oh, you should check out this band. And I would like fucking memorize it and get home and try and, you know, find it and not get a virus on my computer. Yeah, I remember doing that too. That's why I love that you made the mix. Thank you. I've been really missing just receiving and making mixes for people. It was such a part of being a younger person and discovering music. Yeah, totally. I feel like it really can tell you a lot about a person too so let's keep going your next band is bad dudes bad dudes yeah so bad dudes and upsilon crux go hand in hand for me those are bands that i had the pleasure of seeing live in la a bunch wow and so they would frequently play the smell and pair space and these really incredible all-age venues going when i was in my late teens to college early college and seeing these bands just doing insane things, giving 100% of the music was really life-changing for me. And they were homies, Bad Dudes and Upsilon, and um, we got to get to know them. They would play shows often in the same bill. There was a while where we tried to go to every single show that we knew that they were playing. You know, just being there and hearing is so different than, you know, I mean, not to say that their records are not good because I still listen to the records today, but there's just something about live music. I agree. I've been missing the live music experience for sure. Yeah. Um, and then you have Ornette Coleman. Ornette is the man. He's something that I hope to become as good as his fucking pinky finger as far as skill and expression and vision. But I think that's like a absolutely gorgeous melody. And he just has a sound on the saxophone that once you hear, you can instantly recognize. And I think that's more or less the goal for any musician, you know, but he, even from his first record as a leader to the later stuff he's just so full of ideas it's really inspirational and you know the music is just fucking swings fucking hard all right so then you got blue and exile yeah so i have a deep love for hip-hop also you know right around my time when i was listening to like rock radio stations i also listened to hip-hop radio stations and blue is this la rapper but he's like in the underground and this cd called Below the Heavens was like soulful samples and like just like really hard raps. And it changed my perspective in that, wow, rap can also sound like this. It doesn't have to be like Dr. Dre or <laughs> Eminem or something, you know? And so that was really cool. And I am a admirer of all of those rappers and, and beat makers because that shit is not easy. Actually, this is making me think of what you do now i mean where does your brain go when you improvise i think it depends on if it's a solo setting or a collaborative setting if it's someone i've played with before or someone who are just meeting for the first time i 
like to listen to what the other player is doing and react off of that. Just because in the past it's led me to playing different things that I, you know, normally wouldn't have and open up different like avenues. Like I still take my Zoom with me and I'll record each set and I'll listen back to it and be like, oh, this was pretty cool. Like, you know, I should buy this one or like, yeah, this was whack. Don't do this. Do you feel like you're going in a meditative state? Do you even think about it or is it just intuitive? Uh, I definitely think about it. Sometimes in solo settings, I could really let go of that kind of thing. But uh, when I'm playing with other people, I definitely do play with my eyes closed but I try and be aware of any sound in the room, be it from the musician or from outside or from inside, from the audience. And that kind of makes it fun for me. That's really cool. Are you actively thinking about chords? No, it's more like reacting to sounds or like phrases or rhythmic patterns and things like that. I think it's definitely something that it gets easier the more you do it. I'm really grateful that I've had these, you know, many opportunities of playing, people asking me to join their bill or people coming in from out of town, asking if you want to play together and even me going to somewhere new and being like, hey, could you set something up? Like maybe we could even play together instead of me playing solo, you know? I think that definitely helped me not being so in my head or you know, being really stuck in a certain kind of playing. I love watching you play. <laughs> You're sweet. No, I'm not. I mean, it's amazing. I remember when I was living in LA, that's when you were doing the Black Sun Sutra. And oh, yeah. Yeah, I went to one of your shows and everybody was sitting on the floor and it just blew me away. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and that's an incredible album. And since then, you've put out so much music. You're always putting out music. Might be too much, but... <laughs> Hidemi came out in October 2021 on American Dreams, and also comes with a chapbook made by Asian American peers, mentors, and heroes. Patrick says about the album, The concentration camps that Japanese Americans had to go through has been a major part of my work for the last couple of years. Patrick's last album, Dissension, was heavily focused on the experience inside Japanese American concentration camps. But his new album, Hidemi, a solo multi-layered woodwind journey, is more of the personal experience of his grandfather after getting out. His name is Hidemi Patrick, Shiroishi explains. So I was named after him, but I never got to meet him as he passed away before I was born. This record is named after my grandfather, Hidemi Patrick who I never met. He passed away before I was born, but was my grandfather on my father's side. And he was held in the Tule Lake concentration camps um, during World War II. And the 80th anniversary of that executive order is next week. So he met my grandmother and they actually got married in the camps which is a beautiful thing to come out of an awful situation but this was i imagined it to be what his journey was sonically after the camps when they first announced the order everyone got to take one suitcase with them and they were there for four years that's a long time and at first they asked their neighbors like oh like please watch over our house our refrigerator and all this shit." and then when they got out and returned home everything was gone so they moved to Chicago for one year and essentially started over. They'll save up their whatever job they had. And they bought like one fork one week. And then the next week they'd buy, you know, another fork. And then the following week, like a spoon and rebuilding really slowly like that. And then eventually after that year, they came back and found their roots back in LA. But yeah, this is just my feelings about it. I feel like I'm awful with words and I feel... Like music is a more pure way that I could express 
emotions and things like that. When did you first learn about your grandfather's history? Because I learned about Japanese concentration camps way later. Like it was not taught in school. Yeah. I remember there was like one paragraph in my high school history book. And I went home and I asked my grandma, I was like, yo, what is this? And she just shut down and didn't tell me anything. And part of me regrets not asking her again, just because I would like to have heard her stories, even if they were awful. And then it was just a lot of investigating on my own, which more or less was like post-college. So your grandparents, they did not talk about it? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mine were like that about World War II as well. I think they just wanted to move on. Yeah, and I, you know what? I totally get it. Like, you know, as an adult, like if I were to have grandkids, I wouldn't want to put that on them. Right? You want them to be happy and supportive and they have enough shit to think about. But also at the same time, I don't know, it's, it's hard. It's hard being a parent or a grandparent, you know, because I think it is important for them to know about it. Is that your grandfather on the cover? Yes. Yeah, so that is my grandfather on the cover and my dad next to Aww. him. I really like that photo. So I had that photo a couple of years before writing Kidemi. And it's just an image that I always came back to. Man, like, he looks hard. Yeah, he looks cool. I mean, he went through a lot of shit. Yeah, I'm glad that American Dreams put this out on vinyl too, because the idea of them, you know, on a huge square rather than like a CD square means a lot to me. Did you want to talk about the chat book that you made to go along with it too? Yeah. So the chat book idea came about in the escalation of the whole COVID and the racism towards Asian Americans. And my idea was to give like a different platform for other Asian Americans in this little like avant-garde scene. And so I was able to ask friends, peers, and some heroes. And thankfully everyone I asked said yes. And I really appreciate the honesty and vulnerability that, you know, that they gave in, in their writings. And I love it. I love it a lot. I think I'm going to try and do a second volume for as long as I can, just because I think these stories need to be heard, you know, and even as a friend of all of them, I didn't know about their histories like that. And so even for me, when, you know, people would send me their submissions, I would read it as like, dang, like, it hits me, you know, even if it's just an essay or a poem, it was really nice to read. So selfishly, I'm just going to do it for myself so I could, I could read that. Well, that's art. It should just be for yourself. Yeah, yeah, totally. Even though you never met your grandfather, do you feel connected to him? I do. I do. When I was younger, my dad would tell me all these stories about him. This is why you're named after him. Mm. His traits were like this like he held himself like this and I think from a young age I was like he's setting the standard you have to be a person like he is and yeah it just really stuck with me I hope I'm uh, making him proud you know I think you are I feel connected in the way that I was writing you yesterday like our grandparents did go through all this trauma that you know then they had our parents and then yeah. now there's us and I feel like we are the first generation that's able to maybe start talking about it and sifting through it and yeah. Maybe do some kind of healing with it. Yeah. It's also wild to think about your grandchildren are the ones that's going to be able to, you know, heal what you went through. I think it's 100% true. I mean, I totally believe in intergenerational trauma. I learned this really beautiful thing. Like when my grandma was pregnant with my mom, I was there too. 
because women are born with all the eggs they'll ever have. Yes. That's so special to me. I think it's really cool. I feel like once you hit a certain age, you do like, oh, what about my ancestors or what about my my family? And digging into that, I think is, it's a beautiful thing, you know? Do you know if there's music in your ancestry? From my immediate generation. So my parents and grandparents on both sides, not really. I think my aunt told me that my grandma, so she's like one of eight, that all of her siblings were like musical. They would hum and play piano and stuff like that. But my grandma was the only one that didn't get that. So it just jumped to you. It ju- Yeah, it jumped to me. And all of my cousins and my brother, they're all like either studying to become something in the medical field. My brother just became like a pharmacist and he's he's working now. And then it's me, you know, making these toots and, and stuff on. <laughs> I feel like by this point, your family should be supportive of what you're doing because you're able to take care of yourself. Yeah, it took a while. I think it was like two years ago when they finally stopped asking me when I was going to quit. Mm, wow. Even though I have a full-time job and whatnot they're like why don't you just relax and i was like no this is me relaxing you know this is what i want to do and i think they've slowly gotten it i give them like a tape or a cd of whatever i make give them a copy so that they could see and we've played at the mocha me dylan and paco and so you know a mocha is something that they can understand right i also invited them to the smell which for me was a huge deal but they were like what the fuck is this like i don't want a kid playing here, you know? I was like, isn't this cool? I'm like, no. <laughs> I can't really imagine seeing some parents at the smell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did the smell survive COVID? It's still alive. Okay, good. God bless them. The smelly smell. The smelly smell. <laughs> do you have any advice for other musicians that maybe want to do this full time as well? I think it's a tricky thing. And there's going to be a lot of a rejection, whether it be from like labels or shows or, you know, anything like that. But I think not compromising, you know, what your vision is and your intention is and what your message is, is the most important, you know, and at the end of the day, yeah, strangers listening to your music is nice, but it should just be for you. Like we talked about earlier, it should be just for you and to try not to get caught up in that because you can definitely get caught up in it. I get caught up in it. We all do. Yeah. It's that oxytocin or whatever that you get when someone's like, I like that or whatever. Yeah. Like, oh, you do. You like it. Yeah. And <laughs> it feels great. No. And I'm yeah. really grateful. Anyways. Yeah. It's fucking weird. It's fucking weird. I'm going to go to another one of your releases as I'm, I know you're saying it's hard for you to talk about your work, but you have a lot of really great and important work and i want to just talk about it thank you so yeah. you also made this beautiful album i shouldn't have to worry when my parents go outside yeah so that was in the height of all of the asian american violence yeah and uh, there were videos popping up of just like random people just like, punching old old asian people and it was like what and you know as if covid wasn't enough like that shit scared me and thankfully where we live is is pretty safe, but even, you know, Orange County is not that far. Anaheim's not that far. You know, just old man walking around. Some dude just comes and punches him in the face and runs away. And he's just like on the floor. It kind of hit me. It hit me different. And so that was my response to that. Do you think 
When you play music, that's your voice. Yeah. When you put that out, I was just like, I'm so glad that Patrick made this record. Thank you. I think a lot of people were very kind. Like I was able to raise a good amount of money that I could donate. That's amazing. And a tape label reached out shortly after and said, hey, if you want, put it out on tape and then we'll donate part of the proceeds um, to charity as well. And then a label that I've been following for a long time, uh, Family Vineyard, hit me up also. And they're going to put it out on vinyl this year with, I believe, all the proceeds of that going towards charity. And so that was really heartwarming that other people are on the same page and and, uh, donating and things like that. And I'm super appreciative of them. Do you think making the record is what planted the seed for creating Hidemi? Yeah, I I think so. I think so. I think it was like that sort of thing has been in my mind for a while, even like with dissension that I recorded when Trump was elected. And then even in the Fubuchi stuff, like I added in like little audio clips of people that spend time in the camps. How are you able to find that? Of the internet. It's a wonderful place. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. Are you going to do anything this weekend on the 80th anniversary? Yeah. So me and Dylan recorded some music again. We released some improvisation last year and we donated money. And so we're doing a second uh, edition of that as well. And then I'm actually going to take a part in a panel. It's part of this Colorado colleges sponsored by them. Um, This writer, Brandon Shimoda, put together like four of us. So it's going to be myself, artist, performer, uh, Kimiko Tanabe, a poet, uh, Bryn Saito, and then a writer, Jamie Nakamura-ren. And so we're going to talk about that, our work, and then have a little conversation after. Tell me about the poem you read, February 19th, 1942. So that was the day that the executive order was announced. And the person who wrote it is actually taking part in the panel uh, with me on the 19th, but... We recently had a Zoom thing where we all met each other for the first time and got like a short little introduction of everyone. And I was interested in, in looking into everyone's work further. And I found a couple pages of her, her poetry and that one just hit me. And I think it's beautiful. It is. Do you see yourself making music for the rest of your life? I would like to, yes. I mean, I can see it. I think it's something that allows me to get things off of my chest that I wouldn't really be able to do otherwise. And I think it would be rad if I'm like 80 and playing like, you know, bop jazz with my friends or something. I think that would be cool. I think playing is is definitely part of me and listening to, you know. Where do you want to go in the future? Like if you had your ultimate wish, what would you be doing? I think playing, playing as much as I can. And I feel like our scene is pretty small and everyone who decides to play this kind of music isn't that well off, you know. And so I do appear on some friends' records, but for the most part, it's just like, well, just give me a copy of the record and that's fine. I'm doing all right. But, you know, it's nice to see people buying digital copies off of Bandcamp or like any merch that I put out. Of course, that feels like incredible. But yeah, if if I can maybe get my music to a wider audience, I think that'd be great. If not, that's okay too. (laughs) I feel like you're on your way there and you've been on your way there. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Well, let's just finish your playlist here. So then you have John Zorn. That record, Naked City, was me for the first time hearing saxophone in a different context. Like there were like hardcore miniatures and screeches and all sorts of sounds that I've never heard before. And the record really impacted me and also sent me down a huge rabbit hole on, uh, on Soul Seek. <laughs> I, re- 
I still have Soulseek. I still use Soulseek. <laughs> Do you think after you heard John Zorn, that's when you started experimenting with different sounds? Yeah, it was probably like a couple of years after when I finally gained the courage. And joining Karima was definitely in that vein. And we were totally ripping off Magma, who's later on on this list. And it was us trying to figure out like, oh, yeah, we could do free jazz. Mm. And it was, it was fucking hard. It's not just blowing really hard. I'm sure it's really hard. Well, then you got John Coltrane. Yeah, he's the GOAT. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's the best. And then you, you have Anthony Braxton. Mm-hmm. So he wrote and released this record called Four Alto. And it was like one of the first solo saxophone instrument, like free improvised records, I think. But a lot of, you know, solo stuff that I do is like solo saxophone work. And it started with that. And I started in like 2014. The goal for myself was to release some sort of solo material every single year. And I didn't want to hold myself back if I thought it was bad, because initially I think everything that I record is not good. <laughs> and so it was a, a way for me to get it out and move on and now i look at it as a timestamp. yeah so that's why you always have music coming out i didn't know that yeah it's it's for myself because if i held back no one's gonna write anything perfect unless mm-hmm. you're like fucking yeah like john coltrane or nicole Munner. and so that was like my way of being like it's okay like it's just out and then you can move forward and i'm glad i did that because you know, i could see what i was trying each year you know, as far as oh now i'm playing with pedals and like this idea worked but this didn't really work but that's okay here I'm working with like field recordings. It's definitely intentional. Yeah. The past couple of years, there was a lot of time. I released a few solo records in a year, which at first I was like, I don't know if this is, you know, what I intended, but I'm glad that they came out. All right. And then your last two songs are Magma, the last seven minutes. Yep. They're also the greatest. <laughs> So strange. We got to share a bill with them in a festival when we toured uh, Europe. And that was a fucking trip. They're super nice. So it was a positive experience meeting some of your idols. Yes, thankfully. Yes. I've also had some not positive ones. And that's definitely a bummer to be like, oh, this guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like, and it kills your joy of listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. I know that from working with bands too. There are some bands I can't listen to anymore because when I worked with them, I was like, why are you so lame? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just be nice, people. (laughs) I know. I guess it's hard to be fucking nice, huh? I know. Who would have thought? Let's just be kind to each other. And then your last one is Kralis. I don't know this one. They're like a black metal band based in New York with Mick Barr, who's like a huge hero and avant-garde like legend. But they were my way into the whole black metal world. And I love that music there's a lot of bad things in that genre but there's also a lot of good things and i just love the constant wall of sound that's present in that music they're they're great i like that sound too i saw you have a bunch of shows coming up so for anyone in la do you want to mention any of those yeah i'm playing a japanese garden at the end of march and then in the middle of march i get to go on a short little tour which i'm really excited about Uh uh, opening for a band called sumac I mean, we're doing like a Southwest, like one week and supporting them for like half of their West West Coast tour. And that's going to be fun to be on the road. Oh, and I'm coming to San Francisco in April, end of April. Oh, definitely need to see you. I'm playing at the lab. Where can people find you music? My name, Patrick Shiroishi at bandcamp.com. I post mostly everything that I make. So that's archived there. And then I have a website that has all the releases and, and things too. 
do you have any final words, just advice for other musicians, creative people, just anything? Yeah. Going back to what we we're talking about, I think it's super important to be nice <laughs> yeah. to everyone in the scene. You know, I think the longer you're in it, the more you realize that it is a small world. And if you're shit to someone, like someone else is going to hear about it when it's not going to be good for you. It's not good for anyone. And yeah, be nice and be true to yourself. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for, for having me. And I'll see you soon. Music is definitely part of my life forever. And even if I'm not playing it, I definitely need to be listening to it or, you know, seeking new music out. Thank you, Patrick, for talking to us today. I think you're extremely talented and I look forward to hearing you play live again. All of Patrick's information is in the show notes as well as some videos that I enjoy. Thank you, listener, for joining me again today and another Infinite Kaleidoscope. This episode is a two-woman show. It was produced by me and mastered by the wonderful Jess Labrador. I know Jess from her music project called Chasms, and she's also a talented sound engineer. I wanted to share some more words from Patrick that I found impactful that I read on his band camp. Shiroishi explains the Japanese concept of gaman, which means to endure the seemingly unbearable with patience and dignity, or simply put, to bite your tongue. It's a chilling, profound passage in which the history of Japanese Americans have had to gaman, with Shiroishi ultimately stating that we can no longer gaman. We must be loud and speak up, so what our grandparents and ancestors went through will not be forgotten or taken for granted. I think Patrick's message is really important. If you don't know much about what the Japanese people endured, please look it up. The theme music is by Chelsea Wolfe and Ben Chisholm. Other music is various releases by Patrick Shiroishi. Cover art by Sandy Santamaria. Please support independent artists like Patrick. And listener, I will see you here next week when we talk with another creative and their path. Last thing. What was that again, Patrick? I listen to whatever I want to listen to.